Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Guide Talk is going to continue. We've got the power panel in place. We've got Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner. Justin was going to join us, but he couldn't make it. So, gentlemen, welcome to the extended version of Guide Talk. We are glad to be here. Hi, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Hey, Tom. Glad to have you here. Everyone here is in studio. We can take your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2400. 84 is the place to send them. You can also send me an email, bill at myfaithradio.com. You've heard that. I love the Bible verse that says, for our citizenship is in heaven, mm-hmm. from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's Philippians 3.20. So how do you stay heavenly minded and earthly good, keeping the two in balance? Mm. How do we do that, gentlemen? Mm. <laughs> Or I'll go to Rebecca if you guys keep blinking at me. Rebecca. You know, I always have Rebecca in my hip pocket. <laughs> That's true, but I haven't perfected my guy talk voice yet. That's true. That's still true. stick this, out this, a little bit. This is going to sound kind of trite, but it's the truth. It's through prayer. Having a regular prayer time is it's what keeps trite. me heavenly minded and earthly good. Because mm-hmm. without prayer, I'll, I'll blow it one way or another, either be too heavenly minded or too earthly good. So I think it's uh, just having a regular quiet time in the morning with the Lord where... We talk things through, and there you go. But I think it's also in knowing your purpose, knowing why you're here. You've been saved by Jesus, by his shed blood. Why am I still here? Well, I know I'm going to heaven. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think Christians, when they look at how difficult the world is or what's going on now with Antifa and other things, they're really hoping the Lord returns just to end it because they don't want to have to face it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's quite the attitude we should have. The attitude is we have a mission. We have two purposes. Purpose number one is we are ambassadors of the gospel. We are here to speak the truth about Jesus Christ and to bring people to faith. Because eternity is a long time without Jesus. People need to hear. Secondly, we balance that out by having an eternal perspective. That, you know, I've got this poster I love, and it says, you know, Tom, before you were created, Jesus did just fine. And after you're gone, he'll do just fine. Well, that's true, because... I know eternally where I'm going, and that I'm here a short period of time. And in that time, I want to fulfill the purpose for which Amen. I'm here. Amen. And my plaque on my wall says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's such a good question. It actually calls back to a little bit about what we talked about in, in the first hour, too, and what these guys are saying is that... I, I think when we see heaven as not some place that we get when we die, which, you know, obviously uh, for those that are following Jesus, that that will be their experience post this death. But when you talk about the word citizenship, citizenship tells me that's where my home is. Like where I'm a citizen is is where I'm home. And so it does call back into mind that if I'm an actual citizen of heaven right now, then I need to start developing the discipline, whether it's through prayer, like these guys talked about, um, through uh, reading the word, through conversations, whatever it is. But the discipline is to look around the world, not with disgust or disdain, but to look at look at this world as a place of exile that is in need of redemption. 
Um, and, and that is a discipline, I think. Um, guys, I don't know what it's like for you, but um, it does mean that when good things happen in this life, uh, you know, whether it's getting the job or a relationship works out or something like that, I stay in a place of gratefulness without tipping into idolatry for it. Uh, grateful that in the midst of this exile, there, um, there still is good, you know, that is going to take shape. That also helps me remember that's where my home is, where the ultimate good, uh, where our hearts are going to be fully satisfied if they're only partially satisfied here. So I just... You know, I, I think it's so important to remember that we are exiled from our true home. But as soon as we start trying to make a, a home in this world, that, that that's when we set ourselves up for just so much for disappointment. Um, but what's kind of crazy about it is I love the passage where it says that we're given uh, the spirit as a deposit for our future inheritance. And, and that future inheritance or that home towards which we're headed uh, in this life as the spirit dwells within us as individuals and as a body we get a little taste of what our actual home is going to be like in the future. And, and it helps um, it helps encourage us and live with an actual hope that we are walking towards our home and then to shine the light of that home into the world around us so other people will be called back home. I mean, that's that's the basic purpose right. of evangelism is, is to share the good news that there is a different kind of home. Uh, and you can, uh, once again, turn your heart back towards that home through repentance and uh, and trusting and following Jesus. All right, when I think of the way Jesus went about obeying his Father and the place and time that he did it, you think of when he was around the Greeks and the Jews, and of course Greeks were valuing philosophy, the arts, and intellectual superiority, right? Yep. So Jesus was crucified, and to them, that that's like the opposite of wisdom. That's like f- complete foolishness, right? Mm-hmm. How'd you end up getting crucified? Right. So then you think of the... Um, Jews, I mean, they, they love power and strength. And so to be crucified, that's the opposite of power. That's like complete weakness, right? Yeah. All right. So help me connect these dots here. So Jesus is talking to one of the most influential and respected Jews, being Nicodemus. And he basically says that you have to be born again. Now that has to sound like complete foolishness to him as well. How do you do that? Do you enter your mother's womb? So when we hear things and we, we've realized that the world we're living in today has got to sound, what we're, what we're teaching, what we're preaching and declaring the gospel says, sounds like a lot of foolishness to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It does. And that's why we have to get away from this idea that a short five-minute presentation of the gospel fulfills the Lord's will. We have to spend time with people because like Nicodemus, uh, he, after that meeting with Jesus late at night, uh, I'm sure he still hung around with Jesus. You know, the Scripture doesn't give us any direct word, but, you know, he was there at the crucifixion. You know, he was there to make sure Jesus properly got buried. So I think that what we don't do is we don't spend enough time talking to one another, listening to one another, sharing our life story. And as a result, people look at this as foolishness because we're all tainted by the world's view, whether it's Greek or or whatever it may be. But in order to get the Lord's viewpoint and to understand the spiritual awakening. I need other people to help me do that. And and just think of this too. I mean, Bill, when you were talking about it was foolishness to the Jews mm-hmm. that Christ got crucified because mm-hmm. they were looking for a victorious Messiah yeah. Yeah. who wouldn't get crucified, right. but who would crucify the Romans. Right. And and just think of how wrong we got the first coming. And that to me is a caution 
that we've got a lot of things wrong about the second coming. And when preachers get on TV and bring out their chart on how the second coming is all going to happen, I mean, yes, I totally believe he's coming back in the clouds, raising the dead, judging the world, and bringing in the new heavens, the new earth. But all the details that people think are so clear in Scripture, they're not. And we need to be careful about that. Well, you know, First Thessalonians 4 talks about what we traditionally call the rapture. Mm-hmm. Although the word rapture is not used there, it talks about us meeting the Lord in the air. Being caught up. Yeah, caught up in the air. We built a whole theology around that, and I, I get leery of that because we make finite statements about it that aren't actually there in Scripture. Uh, bottom line is, I want to actually reflect what's in the Scriptures, not what is popular, not what my denomination has said, not what is comfortable to the world, mm-hmm. but what does the Bible actually say? Because ultimately, those of us who preach and teach the Word, the Bible says we're going to be held more accountable. And I yep. would like to and hear to, Jesus say, well done. And to major in the majors, not the minors. Yeah. Well, I was thinking too, just with the recent uh, nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, that she's been taking a lot of heat uh, from outsiders in particular of, of uh, Christianity about the idea that she might um, yield or submit or, or, or you know, to the, to the authority of the church, for example, how there was a New York Times editor that said something effective, uh, you know, almost sort of bursting out. I just don't understand religion. And, and when you're on the outside and, and at the beginning there, Bill, is that uh, the, the things of the kingdom look like foolishness to people who haven't experienced uh, them, uh, you know, for themselves on the inside of it. And the idea that you would let somebody else just in, in your average normal church, somebody else called maybe an elder or something like that speak into your marriage, for example, or, or counsel you in the midst of your anxiety, uh, that, that is so opposite from what we're taught in the United States uh, in terms of a way to do life and, and sort of forge it alone or um, you do you or whatever the language you, it might be. Uh, there's so many things about God's kingdom that simply are foolishness when you're an outsider looking in. And so I was, I was really struck by the New York Times reporter who really just simply didn't understand religion. It was, it was a fascinating comment. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the right. Spirit of God for their foolishness yep. to him, and he cannot right. understand them because yep. they're spiritually discerned. Yep. Isn't that mo- most of the world right now? That's what's going mm-hmm. on. But if, So where do we start? Paul says... We appeal to every man's conscience in Christ. Yes. So I don't try to make, I mean, I don't understand half of the stuff that that is going on. But so my point is not to make them understand stuff. Let's get right to the nitty gritty. Your conscience. Have you sinned? Have you done things that deep down you know are wrong? And then you bring Christ in as their savior. Uh, that's that's what Paul appealed to was our conscience, not so much to our mind or our emotions, but let's get right down to it. Do you have any guilt over anything you've ever done, and, and what are you going to do about that? There you go. With millennials, I never start with the word sin. They just don't know what that word really means. But I say to them, tell me about your shame and guilt, and there is no issue at all because <laughs> wow. they've all got it. And so with the shame and guilt, then, then I can start taking them on the journey to talk about Jesus. And I think that we just have to become wise as to know how to speak to these different groups and what they're going to hear. All right, gentlemen. Nice job. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we've got one more segment of Guy Talk, and then Dr. Ann Bradley will be joining me. 877-933-2484. If you have a question, let us know what it is. Be right back. All right, we're back with Guy Talk. Got some great questions coming in. Here's one gentleman. 
This passage comes out of Matthew 18, verse 19. It says, I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. What does this mean? Go ahead, Tom. Well, no, in the okay. break, you, you, right. you brought up First John, and that's what I would have done. Go well, ahead, Tom. You know, the, this, this, you have to look at the whole Scripture when you look at any particular verse, because you can take it out of its context or misunderstand it. Yes, when we ask together, the Lord will hear us if, as First John says, we ask according to his will. Mm-hmm. So we have to first know his will and be within that. If we ask that he does, you know, something gives us a lot of money so we can add a big addition onto our church— uh, that, that's fine and good, but I can't use that verse to say you're going to get it. What I can do, though, is that when two Christians come together and they pray about something and they say, you know, we're asking that you open the door for us to be able to share with the people on that school board or those teachers or those other people, the Lord will open doors. And that's what I encourage people to do. And notice how important it is where he says, you know, with other Christians, yeah. that we pray alone, but we often need to be praying with other Christians. Absolutely. And didn't we talk a couple of weeks ago, guys, about the idea of binding and loosing things on we earth and, and in heaven? And I think um, this passage, too, is to, and I appreciate what you said, uh, Parrish, just the idea of not taking things out of context a bit. This specific passage, it appears, uh, is one in which it's it's specific to dealing with the binding and loosing that might be happening within the church, where church leadership is called to... Um, create the boundaries in terms of what is appropriate for life in God's kingdom. And so the idea of two or three agreeing uh, on anything, that anything is within the context uh, of um, the boundaries of the church in which people are following Jesus in that case. So it's not like, you know, the four of us after the show and Rebecca, you know, joins us, the five of us, and we're like, gosh, we're going to totally agree that we're going to pray for a Mercedes to show up for all five of us, and, and we better expect God to do it kind of thing. And I think Sometimes that idea that um, we, we just take these verses out of their passages and out of their context, and then we make some sort of rule about them, and then we get confused maybe why it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to be that that's what the scriptures maybe are teaching there. It, it's much more about the uh, of an agreement under the authority of God about what is the boundaries in his kingdom, uh, and uh, and then, then God honors those boundaries on behalf of the church. So Good P- word, Peter. Peter, would you go ahead and lead in that prayer, please? <laughs> I think, you know, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish I much. Have an, I have a Honda Insight. Go ahead, go ahead, Peter. <laughs> I think I'm good. Well, I think the biggest miracle is getting two or three in the church to agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Oh, my. All right, here's a, a comment. If, if, if it's a fundamental problem with people that they hear about a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's God alone who can draw a person into a personal relationship with him, Right. So he, you can't want him unless he draws you. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the only reason you love him is because he loved you first. Yep. So uh, we have hope for everyone and pray for God to break into a person's life that they may want him. Yep. So when you have a discussion with somebody about their where they are in their faith and they're not interested in God, has God not knocked on their door yet? Has God not drawn him or her in yet yeah well i'm What's just that thinking, process i'm now you're going to get my predestinarian uh, we don't want view. that at this time well no it, that's exactly what it is though <laughs> it it's it in in the book of acts the apostles are preaching and it says and as many as were appointed to eternal life right. believed then it says lydia the lord opened lydia's heart 
to receive the things said by Paul. So I do think we, we, we scatter the seed everywhere, we proclaim the word everywhere, but ultimately God is the one who opens the heart. And let me add this scripture verse, that it is the Lord's will that all be saved That's and right. under the knowledge and, of the truth. And they're both and so true. When they're you both balance true. that out, you see, I'm, I'm not of the, when we talk about spiritual enlightenment, or some people just use that term born again, I'm not convinced it's just a one-time experience. I think it, it happens to people multiple times along the way. They get spiritual awakening, and they make it. And then it's like the four seeds. You know, some get really excited, but they land on hard ground and they don't grow up. I think that's the problem. A lot of the people I've been privileged to lead to Christ have been led to Christ twenty or thirty times before that, but at that moment they were ready, and at that moment. Jesus became personal to them rather than an abstract idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we never give up and we keep sharing because we never know what's going to happen, even at the very end. All right, three of my, three of my favorite Proverbs uh, is Proverbs 18.2, a fool delights in airing his own opinions. Oops! <laughs> <laughs> Proverbs 15.5, a fool hates correction. Oops! And Proverbs 12.15, the fool thinks he's right all the time. Ooh. Ooh. So, ah! <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Ouch. Um, you know, Shakespeare said the wise man knows himself to be a fool. The fool thinks himself to be wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's so much foolishness in the world today. Do we, we don't use that word very often, the foolishness of the world. Yeah. But you hear people say things like, well, my God would say, oh, I hate that. I know Me my too. God, and my God would think My this. loving Jesus would never send anyone right, to hell. Right, And well, you, you but, really can't turn around and say, well, you're just a fool. <laughs> but but, I, but I, I listened to Scripture this morning. Jesus called the Pharisees fools. I know. But, uh, James called his readers fools. You, you know, fools. Well, I know. It's all uh, over Scripture, Paul Tom. in Galatians. But on the other hand, Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, don't call people fools or you can go to hell for that. So I think I think you can do it, but you got to be extremely careful using that word. Well, you look at word. who Jesus called fools. He called the religious leaders fools. Mm-hmm. They should have known better, but they didn't. The common person, he didn't quite use that same kind of language because people are people out there. And so they need guidance. They need help along the way. Um, so, yeah, I'm always careful with that term. Fool. Yeah, I never use it. Because it applies to me very readily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in Titus 3.3, 3, it says, at starting in 3, at one time we too were foolish, there you go. disobedient, yeah. deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Grace. Well, and his mercy is incredible. I mean, you think about, I mean, Bill, think about it. How did you wake up to Jesus, sir? Rebecca, how did you wake up? Or Tom, all of us will tell the same basic story. I don't know. It wasn't like I sat down and figured out all the facts and put it all together and said A equals B equals C. It's like one day I woke up or I was at a, a rally or somebody spoke somewhere and something clicked within within my heart. And I said, you know, this is real. This is true. And so it's a it's a revelatory type thing mm-hmm. that we can't control. But once it happens to us, then our responsibility is to begin to seek it out. Mm-hmm. All right. I love uh, when you say, how, do, how did we come to that decision? Well, for me, I believed. I placed my faith and trust in Christ. And then according to John 1.12, I became, uh, I, I had, I became a child of God. Sure. I had, I, he gave the right for me to become a child of God. That verse says, yet to all 
who received him to those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Yeah. I call that the, the good smack upside of the head. I love that. Because uh, I had an uncle who was probably not the best dad in the world, but when his sons were wrong, he'd smack him up in the back of the head and say, <laughs> wake up. And for me, I had to be slapped on the back of the head by the Holy Spirit. I had to be woken up to the truth of the gospel. Because you know what? I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't pursuing it on my own. Jesus came looking for me. Once I woke up, then I had choices to make, whether I was going to follow through with what you did, Bill, whether I was going to walk with the Lord or not. And that meant I had to get in the Word. I had to get with other Christians. I had to study. I had to grow. And I've been doing that now for 50-some years, and it hasn't ended yet. Mm-hmm. Peter, yeah, any thoughts? I, I oh, yeah. Just the language, children of God. I love that. When you're reading that, Bill, it called to mind the passage, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, right? And I just think... You know, you were just going through some of the stuff about how we've lived dead and, you know, in our transgressions. And, and we were people that um, <laughs> the lack uh, of wisdom among us and, and thinking wise, we were actually fools. But I think about that, how much that God continued to pursue us, uh, even though we had rejected him. That, that very thought, uh, you know, how great is the love that the Father has lavished, that he would call us back as children of God when we were the ones who perpetrated the separation to begin with. I mean, that, that's a kind of love that I think if you just allow yourself to simmer in that for mm-hmm. a while, it mm-hmm. needs to cast out a lot of the fear and anxiety that we have, that if God should pursue us in the midst of that kind of stuff, then we have a God who is so for us. And, uh, and, and that is such a great lavishing to be called children. So I really do love the language of children. Well, and I love the way the Lord pursues us. When I was in junior high, do any of you remember this? We had junior high dances in the gym. And they put the boys on one side and the bo- girls on the other. And then the when the first song started playing, the boys had to walk across to the Very girl, slowly. Very slowly and ask them if they dance. And I watched my friends get turned down. <laughs> Not that I ever got turned down too many times, but turned out and they were, they were mortified. They went oh, back yeah. to their seats. How many times do we turn Jesus down? And then he comes back and goes, let's dance again. Let's mm-hmm. dance again. Let's dance again. And so there's no excuse for any of us that we haven't had the opportunity. I've got one more foolishness first I want to throw in the mix, and that's Proverbs 19.3. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness and oh. then are angry at the Lord. There you go. Yeah. A, a man, yeah, and, and and then a man's heart rages at the Lord. Isn't yeah. that the truth? Yeah, you blow when, up your life and then you're mad at God. Yeah, we, we sin, we get the consequences, and it's God's fault. <laughs> Well, it goes back to the problem of the Garden of Eden. What was the problem there? They wanted to be God. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know the difference between right and wrong. They wanted to make the decisions. So if my life doesn't work out, I've got to blame somebody, and it's not me. Mm-hmm. All right, that is our time for today. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. It's been Good great. To be here. And thanks to all the listeners for the great, wonderful questions. You can always send questions to Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. Just put Guy Talk in the subject line, and we'll bring it up next time we meet. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I'll take a short break, and when we come back, Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley is going to be joining me. She's from the Institute of Faith, Works, and Economics. We'll find out about what's going on in our country with the economic situation. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Always glad when I get a chance to talk to Dr. Ann Bradley from the Institute of Faith, Works, and Economics. And thank you for agreeing to do the show today. Hi, I'm Bill. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you for saying that because I, I, you are one of the most sincere people that I've ever talked to on the phone. <laughs> And I oh, mean that. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you. Well, That's I'm not nice. trying to be sweet. It's just really, it's who you are, and I appreciate that. Um, I love the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics website. There's so much good stuff on it, and your contributions are wonderful. And I love what it says on the website. The greatest tool God has given you to impact the world is your work. And yet, right now, there's so many people that don't have work, or they're displaced from their work. And it's starting to mess with their identity a little bit, isn't it? Yes. And I, you know, it's an interesting first question you raise here, because I think that there's two ways that the culture or that we could look at work. The cultural um, aspect of work, I think, is what at the Institute for Faith, Work and Economics that we're in some ways trying to um, curtail, which is this idea that, you know, your job and the paycheck and the fame associated with it is what defines you. And, you know, I think that can lead to a lot of malaise, especially in a time where we're still kind of crawling our way out of this pandemic. There are people who are displaced, as you mentioned, and still people who remain unemployed. And so if, if, if your entire identity is tied up with your paycheck, I think, you can become very depressed um, and feel like you're never good enough. But on the other hand, what we focus a lot on is this idea that work is good and work is what God created us to do. And Genesis 2.15 talks about that. So work even precedes the fall, which is interesting because a lot of people think, you know, if the fall had never occurred, we'd be walking around in the garden just enjoying everything and not really doing anything. And if you read Genesis, you see that that's not true. Work becomes harder because of the fall, but we were made to work. And so I do think in that sense, if you think more deeply about calling and vocation and not just about your job, then we become deeply fulfilled when we live into who God created us to be. And it's not that people are saying my identity is my work, but when things get tight and you're having trouble buying groceries, you, mm-hmm. you do start to feel like you're suffering and not being able to do uh, the job that, that God you know, has called you to do, being a provider and uh, feeding your kids. Kind of get to be a big deal. Absolutely. It's a huge deal. And so all the economics behind um, economic growth and productivity and um, jobs are really important for us to consider because you're right. um, We're here to work, whether that's for, you know, a paycheck, which most of us do. But, you know, frankly, we all work outside of our jobs and that work is important, too. And I think it's all very connected. So when we feel displaced in our nine to fives or whatever it may be, then that displacement and that um, depression and all the things associated with that that crushes our spirit affects all aspects of our life, as mm-hmm. you rightly mentioned. All right. Now I'm going to ask you, Anne, a very simple uh, question, almost borderline dumb. All right, here it is. Why do we need to get the economy moving again? <laughs> well, uh, the economy really is just all of us doing what we do, buying and selling, going to work, Mm -hmm. creating new things, innovating. That's what it is. We tend to think of it in that big term, the economy, but it's just our daily life of of all the things that we do. And um, I I think the reason we need to kind of get it going is because when the economy is prospering, when wealth is growing, 
then jobs are created and people do have these opportunities that you and I have just been speaking of to live into what God has called them to do. But when the economy kind of hits um, the brakes a little bit, which we've seen it do this year, that's when you see high levels of unemployment, which we saw in May because businesses had to shutter for some amount of time. You then have, you know, families who can't necessarily put food on the table or have to dip into the college fund or have to put higher education on hold. All these are real problems. And so, you know, when we say getting the economy going again, what we really mean is allowing people to get back to the business of life Mm -hmm. and getting back to work, getting back to opening their businesses, being entrepreneurs, all of those things are what comprise the economy, and that's what we need to get going again. Mm-hmm. So, Anne, if you can spend $30 on a dinner at a restaurant and $30 on a haircut, but the restaurant's closed and the hair salon is closed, there's the, the economy's not moving, yet you still have the money to spend it. So, I mean, this whole idea of getting the economy going again is 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 more critical now than I think I've ever seen it. In my right. lifetime. And, you know, exactly. And it's, it's a two, you know, it, it, both sides of that coin are relevant. So you're right. If, if you've retained your job and you or, or maybe you've taken a pay cut, but you still have money to buy groceries or go out to dinner, pick up takeout, get a haircut is a great example. You know, and, and those places are not open. Then it's more than just you're not injecting money to, into the economy. The problem is that you're not getting what you need, right. and the people who are willing to supply those things are not able to supply them. So there's a disconnect. So the, the hairdresser very much wants to go to work, and when she or he can't, then both sides of that transaction suffer. It's not just the people with the $30 who want to go and get their hair cut, but it's the willing participant on the other side of that exchange also suffering because they have a service, they want to offer it to us, and it can't. Mm-hmm. And so that stalls the economy. Yeah. But the economy underneath it still has some strength in it because the $30 for the haircut and the steak dinner are still hopefully there for many people. They just can't go use it. Right. Or they or they put it into savings or they use it for other things. So our consumption patterns can get That's true. Re- reoriented. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you have, like, for example, in our house, my husband bought, you know, kind of um, you know, a, a buzz cutter and asked me to cut his hair, which was probably <laughs> the worst idea in the history yeah. of ideas. But I said, I'll do my best. Right. So, you know, that's $30 spent in another way. Um, and so consumption patterns get reoriented, but it's inconvenient. My husband would far rather go to hair cuttery than have me cut his hair. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that, with, you know, <laughs> with certainty. So, you know, we, we are, um, you know, hopefully the money is still there. Um, and as we see people going back to work, I think that more people will have that income coming in. Um, and that's what we want to see more and more of. And I'm thinking about when we are, when we step aside from goods and services that we normally consume and we watch businesses close down and small businesses collapse. And I'm starting to think now, are we going to end up resetting how we live life? Because we're doing things so differently now. This people... is really a huge question. Okay. I hope I asked it well. No, you did. I mean, and I, who knows? I mean, we don't know the answers. We don't know the future. But I'm already seeing just in my own little life 
that things are different. Um, you know, we don't go out to eat as much in a restaurant. Not that we did that much before, but now I would say we will do carry out more than we ever have. You know, we'll, we'll order it and eat it at home together or um, even the way I in- interact with my students. You know, everything I used to do in person, a lot of that is happening over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And so the way that you engage with people in a virtual capacity is, of course, quite different than the way you engage with them personally. And I think if we're headed towards a less personalized transaction basis for some of these economic decisions, uh, I I think that's kind of isolating. I mean, I realize it's what we have to do. I'd rather be teaching over Zoom than not teaching at all, of course. But there's consequence. There's social consequences to this, which is what I think you're getting at. Yeah, but I would imagine you're buying fewer work clothes and and have fewer dry cleaning bills. Right. So there's trade-offs. So you, you don't need the dry cleaner as much, but, you know, you need um, better Internet service. Yeah, or, tell that to the dry case, cleaners, though. Right. <laughs> so it's disrupt. this is disruptive, yeah. and I think people then have to adapt to the disruption. And so as we think about what the U.S. economy has been through, I think the big questions for policymakers and governors are when can we resume activities safely and can we do that how can we do that as quickly as possible because frankly the longer the local dry cleaner stays closed and we're talking i'm talking about now mom and pop not necessarily a huge chain but the longer it stays closed the less likely it will ever reopen Mm -hmm. and that damage is severe Mm -hmm. and we don't want to inflict that damage if we have workarounds and so that's what human beings are really good about uh, about doing is being creative about alternative solutions. And I, I really think that's the solution to coming out ahead of this pandemic is letting people be creative because mm-hmm. they're good at that. Yeah, no kidding. All right, and how, how would increased labor productivity lead to improved living standards of people in our economy? I mean, I love this question because this is kind of what I think about a lot in my own research and my teaching And I think it is the essential element. So when we talk about labor productivity, kind of the one way to think about that is um, the hours or minutes it takes you to complete a task. So there's, you know, as human beings become more productive and there's many ways you can become more productive, you become more productive with literacy, you become more productive with technology, you become more productive with education. And so there's many ways to enhance a worker's productivity. As that productivity goes up in a market-based economy, your wages go up with it. So really, this is the key to economic growth. And so when we, we look globally and we compare very wealthy countries with very poor countries, what is the difference? Well, it comes down to the fact that the average Haitian worker has lower levels of productivity. That's not because they're not smart. It's not because they're not created, uh, creative, and it's not because they're somehow, you know, kind of not made in the image of God. None of those things are true. What we know is true is they don't have the institutions in their society that allow them to become more productive. So really, if we want to grow the economy of Haiti, we have to think about the individual workers and how to be, you know, how they become more productive. So to me, I love your question, but those things are intimately connected, mm-hmm. intimately connected. So that's what our poverty alleviation efforts, whether domestic or abroad, have to focus on. Yeah. The labor productivity element, I know, is one that's a challenge right now across our country and probably the whole world. 
because people do want to get back to work. They do want to feel like they're they're back in the game. This uh, this loss of uh, productivity is just uh, it's hurting everybody. It's hurting everybody, and it's interesting. I had I taught my class earlier today, and one of the things we were talking about with the students during the break is that everything that you used to do that was kind of mundane and routine, lots of those things seem more difficult. And I think that's where the productivity losses come, right? So it's things that used to you just took for granted. They were simple. Now they're a little bit more complicated. And I think about the millions of primary school children who are doing distance learning right now and the parents who are trying to work from home and teach those students. That's a very hard thing to do. Oh, and and talk ever. about you know, spinning out your productivity, we're limited. So it's going to be very hard to be responsive to your boss and your conference calls and your meetings and also have a second grader who needs you to sit with them while they read out loud. Um, and so this is really doing some damage, I think, not only to productivity, but to family life, to community life, to church life. All these things are affected. Mm-hmm. And let me take a little break. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. Um, we'll be back in uh, about 90 seconds. If you have a question you'd like me to ask Ann, let me know what it is. the show. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. T-I-F Let's see. Faith, Works... T-I-F-W-E dot org. Thank you, Rebecca. Sure. Yeah. All right, Ann, another question I have for you. Can you talk about the relationship uh, between economic growth and equality? Sure. Cool. Uh, So... I'd love to. You're asking me my favorite questions. I don't know how that happened. Um, so economic growth. I did show is prep. What, <laughs> it, it, That's so not it's like perfect. Me. I like it. Okay. Um, so economic growth. You know, we're looking at the wealth in a society um, growing, and that gives us income, and that gives us choices, and so we like that, right? And mm-hmm. general economists are excited about that now. One of the things that becomes really important is to think about a society that's governed by what, you know, the way I like to think about these institutions are the institutions of economic freedom. So in other words, is, is the rule of law present? Are there well-protected property rights? Um, are there not excessive regulations that make businesses difficult to operate? Is the currency sound? Is the government legitimate? So we look at all those things when we measure economic freedom. And it seems to be that the societies that have lots of economic freedom have a lot of economic growth. Those type of societies mean that the wealth available is is more egalitarian. And what I mean by that is that it's not just the rich are getting richer, but rather everybody gets richer. Now, there's still people in the top, right, of the income distribution, but that everybody's income is growing over time. Those are the types of societies we want to see. So economic growth is not, you know, um, it's not necessarily correlated with perfect income equality. We would never suggest something like that, but rather, you know, it's an opportunity-based society where people have more of a chance to give it a go, if you will. Uh, 
not all societies run that way, as we know. I'm, I think about a society like Afghanistan or the, the man-made tragedy that is modern-day Venezuela. And Venezuela used to be a wealthy democracy, and now it's not wealthy and it's not a democracy. In mm. fact, it scores dead last in the Economic Freedom of the World Index. And so that is where equality of income or the pursuit of income mobility has been absolutely destroyed. And with it comes increasing poverty across the board. So you can have a, you know, a society where lots of people are very wealthy, some wealthier than others, but you've eliminated poverty. You, that doesn't mean you have income equality, but it does mean that you've eliminated poverty. And of course, that's what I think is most important. But when you look at a society which shreds those institutions of economic freedom, what you end up with, it, it's tragic, is that everybody's poor. So it's like this distorted view of equality. We, want, we don't want people to be equally poor. So I think where most of us live in, in economies that are in the middle, right, mixed economies, not perfect economic freedom, but not also a Venezuela or an Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we need to concern ourselves with is the growing level of regulations. This is in particular my concern in the United States. I think that's where you tend to see this kind of cronyism, right, where people can kind of rewrite the rules of legislation and re, you know, have influence on the regulatory code. And the businesses that can have that influence will always write those codes to their advantage. And as we spoke before about the mom and pops, the small businesses, they are unable to do this. And so there's an unequal playing field, which leads to an egalitarian, you know, wealth creation. And so I think, you know, it's a complicated question you're asking. I think economic growth generally in, a, in, the, in an environment of economic freedom leads to lots of income mobility and the reduction of poverty, actually the, you know, annihilation of poverty, which is what we want. But in, you know, when we start to kind of have a more cronyist sectors of the economy uh, where people, again, can rewrite the rules, then I do think you have to worry about those who are getting rich and why. So I'm not saying everybody who's rich is a crony, but I think we do in developed economies have to worry about that. And that's why we want a low and very transparent level of regulation. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I love off the uh, website, the TIFWE.org website, it says significance from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible teaches that God cares about your work and uh, the purpose, your job description to do your best and invest all of your life and work for God's glory. Okay, that's wonderful. And then the impact through the everyday faithful work of your hands, God brings about biblical flourishing to advance his kingdom. Again, that's wonderful. So when you hear arguments, Anne, about people that are, are pushing for more of a, a socialistic sort of country, do you know what, what they want, what they're hoping for? Do you understand what they're thinking? Not always. I, I, you know, I think you have to listen to the words that people say and hold them accountable but here's what I do think. I think that the people, whether they're policymakers or voters or college professors and maybe everybody in between, when they agitate for socialism, when Americans agitate for socialism, I think most people do not want Venezuela. I mean, I, I don't hear anybody saying we want grinding right. poverty. We want political oppression. We want to increase the amount of political prisoners. We want to make sure the grocery stores are, are empty. Nobody says that. 
But so this is where the, I think there's a little bit of uh, misunderstanding maybe about economic principles. I hear people who are calling for more socialism in America as saying we want equality, we want prosperity, we want equal human rights, etc. And okay. I think those are good things. They are. I think those are good things. But the question, the economic question, it's also an empirical question, is does, so, does socialism deliver that? And time after time after time after time, when we look at experiments with socialism, they lead to the destruction of private property and human immiseration. Mm. And it's not an accident. It's not like, oh, we didn't do it right. Let's let's do socialism better next time. No, that is the function of socialism is that it requires the government to be in control of all resources. And so it's all about power. That's all it is, is about power and power. And then the clamoring is to be on top. And every socialist society that anyone has ever studied has those characteristics. And so that's what I would inject into that conversation is that the socialism that they want is not what real socialism will deliver. Thank you for that. You know, when you start to talk about COVID relief packages and we need to come up with another two or three trillion dollar package and I hear things like that and I think to myself a billion seconds ago it was 1988 and mm-hmm. now we're looking at 25 trillion in debt it's just such a funny uh, funny money number I can't even put my arms around it at all mm-hmm. so when we start putting that kind of debt load on our country what are the consequences of that Ann? I mean the consequences are that we, we will not be able to finance that and so it, the, 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 the financial accounting of the United States government is really not that different than the financial accounting of, of your family, right? You have a certain amount of money in the bank. You have a certain amount of credit extended to you, and that's what you work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned, some of the things we put on our website is that we are to be working with excellence and integrity. And part of that means not getting in too far over your head with credit and not spending and buying things you can't afford. Those principles that operate in your family are the same principles that have to operate when a government spends money. Now, it's just that the numbers are bigger, right? But at the end of the day, stimulus packages, increasing unfunded liabilities like Social Security, which are bankrupt, um, these are untenable numbers. And I would say, in, in addition, we are burdening future generations. So people who have not been born yet, you know, God willing, my grandchildren, (laughs) they have debt and they are not alive. Mm -hmm. We need to think about there's an ethical, moral problem, I think, with saddling the future generations with our debt. And it's because really there's no serious conversation happening about how are we going to reduce the size and scope of government. I Mm -hmm. think we need to have that serious conversation. Yeah, and we just have a couple of minutes left. Are you hearing uh, discussions from uh, uh, women in particular that m- might be shifting from uh, being out working to just deciding, I'm going to stay home now? Yes. You know, I think that this is a time to have those decisions because, um, frankly, I think that, you know, there's a lot more that mothers and wives are doing right now um, to try to survive life in the pandemic. And so I think it w- if we don't think we're going to get kids back to school and or we don't think that, you know, people who have part-time work or um, other types of work will go back to work, 
then I think that there will be a lot of those types of decisions that might be made within the family, that it's better for the family, um, for, you know, the mom to not go back to work, or at least not right now. So I do think you're going to see some of those demographic shifts in the workforce as well. And I, I think they remain to be seen, but I think it's reasonable for women to kind of reassess Mm-hmm. What do I want? Where am I going? What's best for my family at this time? And I ask that question very cautiously because there's obviously many people that don't have a choice. Exactly. And we want them to have the choice. That's why the economy needs to get back into full into full motion. Mm-hmm. So people have the choice. It's not we don't want policymakers to decide for us. We want to decide ourselves. Yeah, so true. And thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to have our um this conversation today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yep. Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you to all the guys who showed up and uh, made Guy Talk happen today. And then uh, Dr. Ann Bradley has been wonderful, as always she always is. So we'll, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. I hope you have a great night. Just remember God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And If he could have coffee with you tonight, he'd sit there and look at you and say, I think about you all the time. I can't get you off my mind. He loves you. He's thinking about you all the time. I hope you're thinking about him. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.